In this episode, we begin a new section in Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Carnes. This new section that we're coming into with regard to church history uh, is pertaining to the years 590 to 1517 AD. So from 590 the whole way to the Protestant Reformation. Um, this section is titled Medieval Church History. The Rise of the Empire and Latin Teutonic Christianity from 590 to 800, Ebb and Flow in Relationships Between Church and State, 800 to 1054, The Supremacy of the Papacy in 1054 to 1305, and Medieval Sunset and Modern Sunrise from 1305 to 1517. Just a reminder that this is just a personal reading of this book. Um, you know, I will be encountering words and names and places that I have never seen or heard before. So please bear with me as I try to pronounce those to the best of my ability. Um, but this is just a personal reading to be um, done in fulfillment of the requirements of a church history class that I am taking through the Master's University online. And today we come to chapter 16, The Rise of the Empire and Latin Teutonic Christianity from 590 to 800 AD. Chapter 16, The First Medieval Pope. Roman numeral 1, Marking an Era. The consecration of Gregory I as the Bishop of Rome constitutes a watershed that divides the ancient period of church history from the medieval period. One should always remember, however, that periodization in history is an artificial me mechanism to organize the God-guided order of history into manageable segments. Some begin medieval church history in 313 with the grant of freedom of religion. Others begin at the Council of Nicaea in 325, Others prefer 378 because the Battle of Adrianople resulted in the migration of the Visigoths into the empire. Still, others think that the ancient period of church history ended with the fall of the last Roman emperor in 476. The year 590 is chosen for this work because Gregory I ushered in a new era of power for the church in the West in that year. The end of the Middle Ages of the history of the Church is also debatable. It has been variously set at 1095 and beginning of the, the beginning of the era of the Crusades at 1453, the fall of Constantinople, and at 1648, the Peace of Westphalia. Westphalia. The writer has chosen 1517 because the activities of Luther in that year ushered in an entirely different era, in which the emphasis was not so much on the church as an institution as it was on the church constituted as a body of individual believers by a personal faith in the redemptive work of Christ. In the medieval era, the Roman Empire fragmented into Muslim North Africa, Asiatic, Byzantine, and European papal areas church-state relations became very important. A distinct Western European civilization emerged from Christian and classical foundations. The name Middle Ages was originated by 
Christopher Kellner in 1634 to 1680, in a handbook published about 1669. He thought of three divisions in the history of the West. Ancient history, for him, ended at 325. Modern history, he thought, had its beginning in 1453, when the fall of Constantinople brought a flood of Greek scholars and manuscripts to the West. He characterized the years between these two dates as the Middle Ages because of the apparent sterility and the absence of classical influence. Since that time, historians have used the term Middle Ages as a convenient designation for that era. However, only the first five centuries of that era, from about 500 to 1000, may be designated as the Dark Ages. And even in that period of Western Europe, was not totally lacking in culture because of the monasteries made intellectual contributions. The men of the Renaissance thought that this era was a chasm separating the brilliant classical and modern periods of humanism. To them, this period could, could be only an age of darkness. <clears throat> but modern historians of the period have been able to show that the medieval era was one of slow growth in which the church in the West fulfilled useful cultural and religious functions by bridging the gap between ancient city-state and modern nation-state. If the men of the Renaissance thought of the years between 500 and 1000 as the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholics thought that this era was the golden age of human history. It was preceded by classical paganism and followed by the dis disintegrating forces of Protestantism which created the chaos of the modern religious scene, according to the Roman Catholic thinkers. Protestant historians consider the Middle Ages the valley of the shadow in which the pure church of the ancient era of church history was corrupted. The modern era of church history, which began with Luther, was to them one of Reformation, in which the church regained the ideals of the New Testament. All these views must be tempted tempered by the fact that the Middle Ages was not a static but a dynamic period. Development under divine direction was continuous even in the Middle Ages. The medieval history of the church took place in a wider arena than did that of the ancient church. After the Teutonic tribes were won to Christianity, the Baltic basin became as important to the Mediterranean basin. The modern era is deeply indebted to the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, people attempted to set up a Christian civilization in which the past was integrated with the present in a meaningful synthesis. The classic culture of the past, transmuted by Christianity, was given to the Teutonic tribes by the Church. The modern era, era thus far lacks such synthesis for life. And as a result, modern man is struggling against confusion and the prospect not only of intellectual, moral, and spiritual, but also of material chaos. With this in mind, the importance of Gregory I becomes obvious. He stood as Augustine did in his day, at the divide between two worlds of classicism and medieval Christianity, and became the symbol of the new medieval world in which culture was institutionalized within the church dominated by the Bishop of Rome. Roman numeral two, Gregory the Great. Gregory, 
540-604, to 604, often called the Great, was born in the troublous times when the Eastern Empire under Justinian was seeking to regain the section of the Western Empire that had been lost to the Teutonic tribesmen. Pillaging bands, disease, and famine were often the order of the day. Born into one of the old, noble, and wealthy families of Rome, Gregory was given a legal education to fit him for government service. He studied Latin, literature extensively, but knew no Hebrew or Greek. He was familiar with the writings of Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine, but knew little of the classical literature of the philosophy of Greece. About 570, he was made perfect of Rome, a position of importance and honor. Shortly thereafter, he gave up the fortune that he had inherited from his father. His mother, Sylvia, entered a convent after the death of his father, and used the proceeds to build seven monasteries in Italy, the most important of which <clears throat> was set up by his father's palace. Here he became a monk. Between 578 and 585 he was an ambassador representing the Roman bishop at Constantinople. Upon his return to Rome, he was made abbot of St. Andrew's Monastery, which he had founded after his father's death. If Augustine became a monk for intellectual purposes, it is fair to say that Gregory became a monk because he thought asceticism was a way to glorify God. When Pope Pelagius died of the plague in 590, Gregory was chosen to take his place. This man, whose epitaph was, quote, God's consul, end quote, was one of the noblest of the leaders of the Roman Church. His renunciation of great wealth impressed the people of his day. He was a man of humility, who thought of himself as the servant of the servants of God. He was a zealous missionary, and was instrumental in winning, English to Christian winning the English to Christianity. His legal training, tact, and common sense made him one of the ablest administrators the Roman Church had during the Middle Ages. But like many men of his age, he was unduly superstitious, superstitious and credulous. His dialogues, 593, display his unbounded credulity in what seemed to be miraculous to the medieval mind. Moreover, though he had some training in sacred learning, his scholarship was marred by a lack of knowledge of the original languages of the Bible. During the seven years when he was ambassador to Constantinople, in Constantinople, he did not even learn Greek. Gregory's greatest work was to expand the power of the Roman bishop. Although he disclaimed, <clears throat> although he disclaimed the title of Pope, he exercised all the power and prerogatives of the later popes. This he did to assert the spiritual supremacy of the bishop in Rome. He exercised episcopal care over the churches of Gaul, Spain, Britain, Africa, and Italy. He appointed bishops and sent the pallium, the scarf of office, to those whose appointments he made were ratified. When John the Faster the Patriarch of Constantinople, claimed the title of ecumenical, or universal bishop, Gregory immediately gave battle. He was willing to accept a coordinate status for the patriarchs of the church, 
which would put them on a level as heads of the great sections of the church, but he was not willing to let any one have the title of universal bishop. But neither the patriarch, patriarch nor the eastern emperor would give in, and Gregory had to bide his time. When in 602 revolution brought a new emperor, Phocas, to the throne in Constantinople, Gregory sought to be on friendly terms with him, though this vulgar upstart had murdered the wife and family of the former emperor. In return, Phocas said with Gregory against the patriarch and acknowledged, sided with Gregory and the patriarch and acknowledged the bishop of Rome as the head of all the churches. Gregory did not, however, accept the title of universal pope, which the patriarch of Alexandria wanted to give him. He preferred to be called the servant of the servant of the servants of God. But while he disclaimed the title of supreme head of the church, he would let no one else lay claim to the title. And he exercised the papal power, in fact. No bishop or metropolitan in the West dared to go against his will, and he permitted no one else, no one elsewhere in the world of that day to assert universal supremacy over the church. Gregory's deep interest in mission work is shown by the fine story that Bede told in his history. According to the story, when Gregory was told that the fair-haired, blue-eyed boys up for sale as slaves in Rome were angles, he said that they were not angels, but angels. When told that they were from Derry or Yorkshire, he decided that they must be delivered from the wrath, the ara, of God by missionary work. He therefore commissioned the monk Augustine, who must be, not be confused with Augustine of Hippo, to go to Britain and give the message of the gospel to the British. Augustine landed in England in 597 and soon won the king of Kent to Christianity. But the Roman missionaries quickly ran into competition from the Celtic church, which was slowly evangelizing to the south. In 663, the Roman faith finally won. Thus, Gregory may be considered the instrument in bringing the English under the sway of the Church of Rome. He made careful plans for the development of the English Church. Spain also came under his authority when Ricard, the Visigoth ruler, renounced Arianism in 589. Gregory made the bishopric of Rome one of the wealthiest in the Church of his day by his excellent work as an administrator. The papal possessions in Italy and nearby areas had never before yielded such a golden harvest as they did under Gregory's careful administrative policies. With this money he was able to act as the protector of the peace in the West. When the Arian Lombard king threatened Rome on one occasion during Gregory's pontificate, Gregory was able to raise troops and force the Lombard to make peace and to win them from Arianism. He was also the organizer of the Gregorian chant, which came to have a more important place in the Roman Catholic Church than that developed by Am than that developed by Ambrose. This chant involved the use of a stately and solemn monotone in that par in that part of the worship that was chanted. Gregory was a good preacher too, 
with a real message for the time of crisis in which he lived. His sermons were practical and stressed humility and piety, but they were often marred by an excessive use of allegory, a common fault of the preaching in his day. More outstanding than his sermons are his other literary works. In the Magna Moralia, a commentary on the book of Job, he emphasized moral interpretation and resorted to allegorizing in order to derive his ethical formulas. He pictured Job as a type of Christ, his wife as a type of carnal nature, the son, the seven sons as types of the clergy, and the three daughters as types of the faithful laity. He wrote other commentaries, but none of them as extensive as his work on the book of Job. He also wrote the, the book of pastoral care, which concerns pastoral theology. He emphasized the prerequisites for the bishopric, the virtues of a, a bishop needs, and the need of, for introspection. The work made a great appeal to the monks of his day because of its ascetic nature. There, were also, there are also over 800 of his letters extant. Gregory was also an outstanding theologian. He is ranked with Jerome, Ambrose, and Augustine as one of the four great doctors of the Western Church. He laid the groundwork of the theology that was held by the Roman Church throughout the Middle Ages until Thomas Aquinas formulated his Summa. He believed that man was a sinner by birth and choice, but he softened Augustine's view by asserting that man did not inherit guilt from Adam, but only sin as a disease to which all were subject. He maintained that the will is free and that only its goodness has been lost. He believed in predestination, but he limited it to the elect. Grace is not irresistible, he believed, because it is based on both the foreknowledge of God and, to some extent, the merits of man. He upheld the idea of purgatory as a place where souls would be purified prior to their entrance into heaven. He held to verbal inspiration of the Bible, but strangely gave tradition a place of equality with the Bible. The canon of the Mass, which he changed somewhat, was widely used in his day, and it revealed the growing tendency to consider the communion a sacrifice of Christ's body, and blood each time it is performed. He also emphasized good works and the invocation of the saints in order to get their aid. It may safely be said that medieval theology bore the stamp of Gregory's thought. The pontificate of Gregory is indeed a landmark in the transition from ancient to medieval church history. Later successors built on the foundation that he had laid as they created the sacramental hierarchical system of the institutionalized church of the Middle Ages. He systematized doctrine and made the church a power in politics.